Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. In John chapter 1, we're told on the basis of authority that we have in Scripture, we have people who were close to God, who knew God, who were anointed and inspired by God to tell us some things about God so that we don't have to start at square one. Like, we don't have to build our own alphabet in this. We have somebody who's already done that for us. Somebody's already put the building blocks in place. The Holy Spirit has inspired them to do so, so that we can take off from that level. Like, if you're a parent, I think, or a teacher, you want to express, not because you want to lord your authority over others, but you want to better their lives by giving them information so that their life can build upon yours and we can make progress over time. That's the hope. That's the desire. And so in Christianity, we don't have to all start at square one, like trying to figure out exactly who God is. God has made himself known through Jesus. It's been communicated to us through the Gospels. We can know what God is like. And rather than each of us running around with our own personal conception of God, that already is a little bit true because even with the truth, we, we kind of put the pieces together a little bit differently sometimes. But we're not running around with our own made-up conception of what God is like. Hopefully, if we're biblical Christians, we're resting upon an authority, the Word of God, those who've gone before us. Let's read the Bible and, and take some moments here to think about what John is saying to us and, and what that should mean for us. In John 1.1, it says, once again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light that shines in the darkness, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's just start with this first verse here. It sounds a little bit like Genesis 1-1, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it tells us that he spoke, and the worlds came to be. So something very similar here, and I think John is using this device to help us to link context back. He wants us to start with John 1 here, but he wants us to think back to Genesis 1, to the creation story. And he tells us in the beginning, when all of that happened in Genesis 1, it wasn't just that there was one person, but in this moment, it tells us about two. And if we know our Christian theology, we know there's three right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and our Trinitarian God. One God, three persons. I know I might just send you into a, into a little bit of a cocoon right now with that, but, but I'd like us to think about this. The construction of this uh, in Greek tells us really there's only one way that this can be taken, is that, God, that the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Somehow both together and somehow separate. And uh, that's a little bit of a difficulty unless you understand that God is three persons. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. So now we're seeing a further bridge back to that context of Genesis 1. Through Him all things were made. Who is, who is the Word we come to find out about? If you know further on, I hope you've read ahead. Uh, 
it's Jesus, right? Jesus is the word here. And so what John is telling us is that when creation was made, Jesus was there making it, right? Are you with me? And not only was he there making it, but nothing was made except that Jesus was there to make it, okay? So he's there at the beginning, and he's both uh, God and with God. So what this uh, denies is... uh, is, is any idea that there's absolute oneness in God, and it denies the idea that there's absolute threeness in God, that God is both one and three. We can untangle that another time, but the point that I wanted to make here is that this won't allow for the translation that, like, the Kingdom Hall has, where in the beginning was uh, the Word, the Word uh, was with God, and the Word was a God. It won't allow for that. The Greek construction pushes God all the way to the beginning of the sentence so that we know that that's the emphasis, that's the importance. The Word was God. Christ is God in flesh, and that's going to be made clear in just a moment. I'm just kind of setting up some preliminaries because we want to get down to this next part here where it talks about the Word again in verse 14. Notice here we're skipping over a little bit of this, but We've, we've read through this, but here's what we really want to come to. The Word became flesh, and He made His dwelling among us, and we've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because He is before me. Out of His fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given, for the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. That's a long and complicated sentence here. So in this, uh, it's telling us some things about, about God, and it's telling us that he was the Word. There's been a lot that's been written about the meaning of of the word. Why does why does John use the word word to describe Jesus here and not just say Jesus? And one of the reasons is is he's helping us to know some things. There's a lot that could be said here, but but let me boil it down to something simple uh, that he's choosing this way to express God coming in the flesh. Uh, and it would take a while to unpack all the other stuff. For now, just remember that a word is a way to communicate something. Are you with me? So we all we all speak in words, right? That uh, They've even found that when it comes to forming thoughts, we form thoughts on the basis of words. So when people lack language, there's, uh, you probably heard about, uh, and I can't think of the name of this, but this, uh, there's, there's a study done on a girl whose father locked her in the attic for several years. Do you remember reading that in sociology? And she got locked in the attic for several years, and she was born with average intelligence, but after a period of time, nobody talked to her. They slipped her meals under the door. She had no language, and it, it uh, severely affected her cognitive ability. She couldn't think with intelligence because there was no words to communicate with. And so words are an important part of communication. We understand that. That's why uh, when we teach our kids English, we, te- we all teach ABCs. We teach the similar language structure so that when it comes down to it, we can express inner thoughts to one another and have true relationship with one another and have true sharing. Uh, that's, that's a marvelous mystery in and of itself. 
But this is why I think the word word was chosen, is that the word is a way to communicate something. It's self-expression. And I think we can get near the meaning of this if we understand that Jesus is uh, a person, as a person, is making a statement about what God is like. Okay, Jesus coming is an ex- is a statement about God. God, the Father, sending his Son is a statement about what he's like. Seeing Jesus in the flesh is a statement about what God is like. If you picture God and you talk about God with people, you're going to get a million different ideas. Because that can become very nebulous, can't it? That people put God out there in a distance and they, they have fuzzy edges around what God is like. And he's not really known in a particular way. And, but when God comes in flesh and we see the boundaries of his life and we see him walking in flesh and doing things like, like us, but expressing a particular will, it tells us something about what he's like. It shows us he's relatable. Something is communicated by seeing Jesus that can't be communicated just simply by thinking about God. Are you with me? So, Jesus being the expression of what God is like. This expression of God is not just, by the way, about the Father. I think John's emphasis is primarily about the Father. Uh, And here's one that we kind of have to untangle a little bit. Many times in the New Testament, when it uses the word God, it's, it's meaning God the Father, okay? But there are other times when it uses the word God, and it's referring to Jesus, okay? So you can't make these hard and fast categories. We have to look at context to understand which one is meant. And so in this context, when it's talking about being the expression of God, we understand that mostly John is emphasizing that Jesus' coming is expressing something about what the Father is like, He shows us what the Father is like, but not only the Father. He reveals himself, too, and he will show what the Spirit is like, too. So the triune God becomes accessible and knowable through Jesus. What what does that mean, through Jesus, that he becomes knowable? Well, first, it means through Jesus uh, we will see what God is like. Okay, so just for a moment... um, you think about those who are sinful and distant. What does Jesus do for them? What does he do for the distant and the lost? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Okay? What does that tell us what God is like? That he's just angry and wants to get rid of this terrible, inconvenient creation. He wished he never made it. No, he's looking, he's searching people out. He's wanting to reestablish relationship with them. And that's all seen in Jesus. He's, he, Jesus said one time in his flesh, he's, he's only doing what he sees the Father doing. So he's expressing the will of God in what he does. Jesus always, don't you wish this were true of you and, and me? That we only ever did what we see the Father wanting us to do. Well, Jesus did that, and so because of that, we can see something of what the Father is like through him. The second way that we see or we, we have access uh, and knowledge of God through Jesus is through Jesus, we will experience what God does. Okay? He's a saving God, but the mode of his saving is that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And so he doesn't shove sin off into the corner and say it doesn't matter. No, he shows us how significant and ugly sin is. I think of this often that 
in the Garden of Eden, we see uh, Adam and Eve, they sin, and then they put on fig leaves. Could you kind of imagine that? Don't imagine that picture, but uh, if you can imagine what that signifies is, in one sense, they're hiding behind a tree, okay? They put the leaves on, they're hiding behind a tree. And what Jesus does in dying on the cross is he puts sin on the front of the tree, okay? Adam and Eve want to put sin behind the tree where they can hide. Jesus puts sin on the front of the tree for everybody to see its ugliness, and he dies there. That's a different picture. He he shows us that sin does matter, and the justice of God requires that sin pays a price. But Jesus himself, in a way that perhaps God can only fully understand, took our sin upon himself. Jesus dying on the cross saved us from our sin. And by, by doing so, we can now experience the blessing of God. Before, because of God's holiness, he could only, he could only be angry towards those who are sinful. Okay? But in grace, because of what Jesus did, and even in the Old Testament, you'll say, but, that's, but what about in the Old Testament? Do you know that the Bible says that the Lamb was slain before the foundations of the earth? So he can look at Old Testament situations through the light of what he will one day do. So he can only look upon uh, those who are sinful And the Bible talks about him smiling upon them, casting a good countenance upon them. Uh, That can only happen because Jesus paid the price for those sins. Otherwise, we're deserving of the wrath of God, all of us. And we are deserving of it. That's, That's a truth no matter what. We're deserving of it. But what God has done is he sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins so that now we can relate to God in a friendly manner. He can... He can smile upon us. He can, he can show us his favor. Now, Old Testament, the imagery is to, to, to turn his face upon us and shine, okay? Uh, that's, like, that's like a warm welcome, okay? He's welcoming us in. I'm, I'm, the, my language is failing me to communicate this, but the significance of it is this, is that, that God now can look upon us with favor because of Jesus, And therefore, all the blessings that he wants to give us can be ours now because of Jesus. Okay? We've come into a new relationship with him. And then the other part of this is through Jesus, we will receive what God gives. Okay? We talked about grace upon grace, grace over against grace. This is a this is a, probably a Greek um, idiom to have grace against grace actually means the accumulation. It means that now there's grace and then there's more grace on top of that, that he can bless us and he can enrich our lives in the ways that he hopes to. And I wanted to make it clear that grace is not just um, giving us forgiveness when we don't deserve it. Grace is more than that, okay? Uh, when we see grace in the New Testament, we see it in terms of the spiritual giftings. They're called grace gifts. We see uh, the grace coming in times of need when we're going through suffering and we need God's help. Remember, Paul cried out and said, take this thorn away, and, and Jesus responds to it. Remember those, that awkward place of red words in one of the Corinthian letters, Second Corinthians chapter 12? And it says, my grace is sufficient for you. What does it mean? My help in your time of need. So grace is not just like an, uh, an altar thing when you first come to know Christ. It's a daily walk thing where God walks with us and continues to show us favor in the present tense. Not a past tense thing where he showed us favor, but a present tense offering of grace. And it goes even 
beyond that. It's certainly grace for salvation and everything that's tied into that. I hope that we can come to understand. Remember how Paul kind of struggles with this in Ephesians? No wonder, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if Paul can struggle to describe this. <laughs> Maybe I would. Remember how it talks about in Ephesians 1, that we would know with all the saints uh, the vastness of the grace of Christ. He wants us to know that, which is beyond understanding. Okay, So this is hard to communicate. But the point is that, that God will give us grace, and he will give us good gifts through Jesus. But it can only come through him. Um, but there's a lot of people that want to go about this whole thing in a different kind of way. Many people prefer a religion of their own making, and uh, they say, I don't believe in organized religion. Has anybody ever said that to you? I don't believe in organized religion. I want... I hope that your mind always says in response, even if not out loud, would you prefer unorganized? <laughs> because, I mean, what are, what are we offering here? What they probably really mean is, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I don't want anybody telling me what to believe. Well, join the club. That's a human condition. Nobody likes that. But uh, when it comes to big and to beautiful things, have you ever noticed how beauty and danger often go together? The Grand Canyon... I mean, if you're standing at the edge of that, it's beautiful, but it's dangerous. The beauty of Alaska, Alaska, is, and I think Alaska's state motto is, uh, it's your bill if you dare, or something like that. It ought to be like, you, there's beauty here, but it's dangerous, right? There's danger that goes with that. Those two things go hand in hand. And so often with things like that, we don't force them to fit us. We fit that. Like, when it comes to the Grand Canyon, we don't move it out, like the edge of it out, and make it, fill it in a little bit to make it less dangerous. We put up fences around it and go, let's stay back a little bit and let's observe the beauty and recognize that we have to fit our lives to this reality. Does that make sense? And electricity, like, yes, there's great benefits that come with electricity, but we have to respect the boundaries that are there, and we don't force electricity to conform to us in every way. We recognize, like... There's this beautiful, um, I don't know why I'm thinking of this, but an espresso maker. And you've got, because no, I don't even drink coffee, but it's made, there's some real beautiful like stuff. Have you seen that? The really beautiful stainless steel coffee. Am I losing you? <laughs> All right, just picture your own <laughs> concoction of this. And it's beautiful and it operates a certain way and it creates a certain function but you realize that if you just take the back cover off, there's a warning sign. You don't just go sticking screwdrivers in there with it plugged in. You've got to respect the boundaries. We have to adapt to those things. And sometimes, somehow when it comes to God, we just feel like we can make it fit whatever we want to instead of taking upon authority what God has given to us in Christ. He's shown us who he is. Um, and this, I think, is part of our problem today is that we don't want to adapt to truth, we want truth to adapt to us. We don't want to. F- we don't want to fit our lives to the truth. We want truth to fit to us, and we see it all kinds of ways. But um, one of the ways that this often happens is people just say, "I don't believe in organized organized religion," and so you wonder when they say that, uh, what problem do they really have with Christianity? Is it, is it that it doesn't fit them? It doesn't suit them? 
Uh, it's not supposed to suit us, by the way. We're supposed to suit it. And I, I must remain me, and religion must adapt. That's the wrong approach. A religion like that can't be real for a lot of reasons. Um, for one thing, um, when it comes to making up religions, if you're the person doing it, you only have limited experience in your life, and so you can't be an authority on everything. I, I'm sorry to break that. And you, I know spouses here are like elbowing their <laughs> their partner, saying, "Yeah, you're not an authority on everything." But we're not. We're not. A, we don't have enough time to be authorities on everything, and our experiences are limited to our lives, and that creates a difficulty when it comes to each of us inventing our own. It'd be like inventing our own language. We we could do that, and it could be really marvelous, but. We can't really communicate and accomplish things if we all have our own language that we've invented ourselves. We have to come to agreement about something. When it comes to this, um, we have just this limited amount of experience. But when you turn to the Bible, and especially when you turn to Christ, you're coming back to somebody who has the authority to tell us what God is like. Okay, And not only that, but when you come to the Scriptures, you've got 40 different writers here, and they express hundreds of different um, people in here that are all coming with basically the same idea about God. And so you're not limited to your one experience. You're getting the experience of multitude people across a grand period of time. And not only that, but the most important figure in history who has absolute authority. We're going to talk about that in just a second. I'm going to try to do it quick. But he has authority to tell us what God is like. People turn away from Jesus and say, I don't really want Christianity Unfortunately, sometimes it's because Christians haven't been great witnesses, but but um, Jesus has been the perfect witness about what God is like. And so we, we should turn to him, and he has the right authority and ability to do that for some reasons I'll mention in just a moment. The other thing that makes inventing our own religion, um, if we just say organized religion doesn't suit me, I'll decide for myself what God is like. I don't need any other authority telling me what that's like. I'm just going to do this God thing, I feel really close to him when, you know, I'm up on the mountain or walking along a beach or whatever. But the other problem with that is that we have limited knowledge. We only know what we've learned, and 90% of that, as we talked about, is learned based on authority from somebody else. Like, we didn't learn math because we all figured it out. Somebody told us, this is math, right? (laughs) And so, 2 plus 2 equals 4, and we're like, that works in reality, and, but somebody told us that. We didn't all invent that for ourselves. On authority, we came to know certain things. And um, we've had somebody else to tell us that. And then when it comes to our knowledge, we don't always interpret things right. Even from our own past. Have you ever talked to somebody who was sharing an experience with you and they're describing it? And you're like, were you there? That's not at all how I remember it. And that's certainly not how I would have interpreted what they said. Okay, So we don't always make good decisions and interpret things rightly because we're limited in our knowledge of things, even our past experiences. And we can't see the future, and especially beyond death, we can't see that. You say, I know what's going to happen after I die. Yeah, if, you, if you're basing it upon Scripture, we can have knowledge of that. But other, otherwise... You're going to glom together all of the different interpretations of seeing the light and walking down the tunnel and all of what that means and come up with some kind of afterlife knowledge? That's not going to get us very far. 
But if Jesus died on the cross and he rose again, and he's the Lord of heaven and earth, he knows what comes after life. We can base it on that kind of authority. And then it's also a problem if we invent our own religion because we have limited access to God, who can only be known by showing himself. I don't know if you've realized this, but you've got a material body. And if you're here today and you don't have a material body, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to say to that. But I think most of us do, and I accumulate, we can feel the body heat, and it's getting warm in here. But we've got these material bodies, and we can experience most of our lives, we experience through touch, through the five senses, right? And so, uh, especially in the last few hundred years, we've, we've started to equate that with knowledge. And, and some of that's been good because we've built science and, and different things that are based upon observation that have gotten us ahead technologically. But we can't do experience, experiments to prove what God is like. And you can't run experiments on history because some events only happen once, like the resurrection. So you can't turn to science to figure that out. Where do we, where do we turn? And where do we turn when it comes to knowledge from God who we can't see with our eyes, we can't hear with our ears, and we can't touch with our hands? We can't smell him. How do we know anything about God in a world like that? The only way that it can happen is if an invisible God shows himself in some way. And that's what we believe he did through Jesus, is that he, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, he, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. So he's made him known. Jesus has made him known. And, and the prophets have made him known. So God inspired prophets and spoke to them in ways that they could understand. There's a spiritual perception that can happen. But um, sometimes, and, and here's, I think, one of the benefits of the Scripture is that one of the reasons people don't like spiritual authority is that spiritual authority has been abused. Is that true? Come on. Are you, are you awake? Because I think that's, we're saying amen. That, that's true. And you have people who, they seem really close to God and people who seem not so close to God. And, and how do we level the playing field when it comes to knowledge from God? The only way to do that is if we have something that everybody can refer to, right? Okay, so somebody who seems really close to God says, this is what God says to me. And you go, okay, but the book that we have, that doesn't agree with that. So maybe you're lying. Maybe you've misunderstood Maybe you're trying to deceive me. Remember the old prophet and the young prophet in the Old Testament? Sometimes those kind of things happen. But I think this the best reasons to be literate is we can read the Bible and we can get rid of the popish idea that we need to have somebody above us that makes sure that every, you know what I mean? Even the pastor has to submit to the Word of God. Even the, even the Pope has to submit to the Bible. And we, we can all look at it. This was William Tyndale's vision, by the way. I don't know if you know who William Tyndale was. He was one of the guys that helped bring uh, Scripture, especially the New Testament, but also the Old, into English. And uh, it was during a time when everybody was content to have just the Latin Bible. And people weren't speaking Latin except the priests, and most of them couldn't even read Latin anymore. And so William Tyndale got it on his heart. He was educated, I think, at Oxford. 
He was educated in the classical languages, and he said it would be good if the plowboy in the field could know Scripture better than the Pope in Rome. And so he got in his heart to translate the Word of God into the vernacular. Well, it cost him everything because some people who are abusing spiritual authority, they don't like it when the Word of God is known. Are, are you with me? So we have the Word of God, and it's like this, this map. And you might say, um, well... My spiritual experiences by myself are really good, and I don't need that because when I go to the Bible, it seems less real than when I'm out walking in the wilderness of Alaska or along the beach somewhere. I can really feel God's presence at that moment, and it seems more real to me than black and white words on a page. And uh, I'll, just, I'll just say C.S. Lewis had a great response to this. He talked to some hard-boiled agnostic about this, and the agnostic said, um, I prefer my walks on the beach to your Bible. And C.S. Lewis said, well, you need to look at it this way. This is in Mere Christianity. The Bible is like a map, okay? If you're content to walking on the beach yourself, you can have that great experience. But if you ever want to go anywhere, you need to turn away from that experience to what really equates to black and blue and red markings on a piece of paper that look less real, they're the accumulative experience of hundreds of thousands of sailors and beach walkers who walked hundreds of thousands of beaches and experienced things just like your experience. And they're put on this little map so that you can see it and you can get from London to New York or wherever you'd be going to because somebody else has had that experience too. And so what that does is it helps us to get places. And when it comes to our spirituality, it's great to have walks on the beach. But if you want to go anywhere beyond that, if you want to walk on other beaches, you have to have the bigger map. And this is where uh, the Word of God, this is where Christ can bring us a greater experience than we would have if we just made up religion for ourselves. So those errors that we talked about, they make religion vulnerable, self-made religion vulnerable to those errors, but, but people prefer it even though it's not real because we can make it suit ourselves. And religion that we make only has requirements we want. We don't have to do anything that God wants like true holiness or telling truth when it's inconvenient or not cheating on our taxes or treating people with love when we don't like them, right? We don't have to do any of that because we've made the religion suit ourselves. But true religion before God has demands that it makes of us when we really know what God is like and Christ shows us what God is like, there are requirements that come along with that. There's truth that comes along with that. And God is real. And those fanciful religions are fine until we meet the real God. And he may have something to say about how we've twisted truth to fit ourselves. God is real and Jesus has made a way for us to know him. It tells us in Scripture, out of his, uh, verse 16, out of his fullness we have received grace in place of grace, giving us one blessing after another, literally is grace upon grace. Um, it says out of his fullness. And we think that probably he's talk to, talking here about um, prior to verse 14, if you look back, verse um well, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. 
John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said he who comes after me is greater than me. And then at verse 16, out of his fullness, we have received one grace uh, upon another. So the idea of fullness here, if we directly link it back to verse 15, 14, that he's full of grace and truth, this views Christ like the storehouse of grace and truth, okay? That we go to him when we need grace and truth. It's out of him that we we receive favor with God. It's out of him that we know the fullness of truth of what God's like, okay? So that's one understanding of it, but there's more to that. The, the Greek word that stands behind the fullness here is used in another context where it means not only that that he's full like a storehouse with a particular characteristic, but that the fullness of God dwells in him. So that we can come to Christ, not just because he has the thing that we want, but because he is everything we need. Come on, are you, are you with me? Let's say it again. We don't just come to him because he's full of everything we want. We come to him because he is everything we need. Out of his fullness. When we come to Christ, we are coming to God in flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I know you probably know this, but uh, the word for dwelt is the same word we get tabernacled. Okay? He tabernacled. The tabernacle, the idea of tabernacle in the Old Testament was that God could be in the midst of his people. Okay? And so he created this tent as an object lesson to look forward to Christ. Okay? That God would dwell among them in a tent. It's interesting how in the New Testament, a lot of times the flesh is referred to symbolically as a tent. Okay? The word became flesh, and he pup-tented among us. He's there with us. He's living among us in Christ. The fullness of everything that we need in terms of grace and truth is found in Jesus. There's a context here. I don't have time to talk about this because we're almost out of time, but uh, it's an interesting comparison when you look at Exodus chapter 33 and 34 compared to John 1:14 through 18 here. Uh, we see the revelation there of God's word, the Torah. But in John chapter 1, we see the revelation of God's word, Jesus. In Exodus 33 and 34, God dwelt among his people in the tabernacle, and Moses pleaded that God would continue to dwell with them. In John 1, the word tabernacle literally uh, among the people. Um, in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses beheld God's glory. In John 1, 14 through 18, the disciples beheld God's glory. In Exodus 33 and 34, the glory was full of grace and truth. In, Ex- in John 1, 14 uh, through 18, the glory was full of grace and truth. And then the law was given through Moses. We see that in that context. The the law was given through Moses, once again, in John 1.14. And no one could see all of God's glory in uh, Exodus 33.20. And no one could see all of God's glory in chapter 1, verse 18a. But it's fully revealed in Jesus. By the way, this kind of takes us down a notch, too, and shows us how dependent we are. Because the Bible says in chapter 1, verse 18 of John here, that no one has ever seen God except God, except the only Son, the one and only Son who is himself God in closest relationship with the Father. He made him known. So when you hear people say, well, I've seen God, maybe, but it seems to me, once again, this is one of those instances of 
Scripture, leveling the playing field and saying the way that we see God is through Jesus. Come on, right? And so we see this emphasis uh, here in the difference between the two, and I'll wrap it up. But notice uh, the difference in verses 15 through 18 here between John and Jesus. Look at John. John testified. This is talking about John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. John the Apostle is writing here about John the Baptist in verse 15. He says, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this, Jesus, is the one I spoke about when I said he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. That sounds confusing, doesn't it? Um, Let's just break this down. Okay, John was born in his physical body probably about six months before Jesus. Everybody in agreement with that? Okay. So Jesus was born in his physical body after John, right? So John came before Jesus in ministry, preparing the way. And then Jesus came and began his ministry. When it comes to existence, Jesus is the eternal son who was forever with the Father in eternity past. That's why Jesus says later in John, before Abraham was, I am. Because he existed as the second member of the Trinity from before creation. So John now can say, I was before him, but really, he was before me. And so he's greater than me. Okay? John had all the popularity, and at one moment, as he points to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that popularity shifted. Even some of John's own disciples left him and followed Jesus. Andrew and John, um, the apostle, uh, are, are two. Okay, so Jesus and John, they have a contrast here. He comes before me, but he's greater. The status here is that Jesus is greater. The revelation here is that Jesus is greater. John preached a baptism of repentance, and he said, let's get our lives right so God can come. Let's, let's repent and welcome him, welcome his coming, welcome his kingdom. And Jesus brought the kingdom, okay? That's the difference. John announced the kingdom, Jesus brought the kingdom, okay? The second one is a com- contrast between Moses and Jesus. And it tells us this in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, what Moses offered was that the law was given. I'd like you to notice um, these particular verbs. The law was given through Moses. It's as if, uh, and this, this is the way that it did happen, that God spoke with his messenger Moses who would convey that message to the people. Are you with me? Okay. So it was given through. It's almost as if a gift was given to a messenger to take to the recipient. Okay. But then it says... Grace and truth came through Jesus. Okay, do you see the difference there? So now it's not the messenger sending the gift. It's Christ himself going with the gift and bringing it to us. And by the way, the gifts also differ in quality too. Like what can the law do in terms of producing righteousness? Zero. Okay, the law came. It told us where we went wrong. It was the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It taught us that we were uh, failures spiritually and that we needed a Savior. And don't despise that, by the way. Don't despise when the Word of God comes and rebukes us and corrects our wrongs. 
Because what that does is it presents us in this moment before God as those who are in need of him, and we do need him. But grace and truth came through Jesus. Now, it's not a gift of grace and truth given through a messenger. It's God himself, as we've read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son, who is himself God, it says in this scripture, comes with the gift himself. Come on, this is beautiful, isn't it? So it's not just given through. It's good enough that God gave through, but when he brought himself, it brings it to a whole new level. And then um, it talks about anyone else and Jesus. Verse 18, no one else has seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, who's in close relationship with the Father. He's made him known. Okay, So now you, you can contrast anybody in this category because this is really anyone else. No one has seen. That's a, a category that is um, unspecific about who that anyone is. No one has seen God at any time. So I don't know who you know that thinks that they've seen God like this, but whoever it is, Jesus is superior. And there's a lot of voices that are calling out today saying, uh, here is Christ and there is Christ and come out after me and follow me and and there are people that are out there saying the things that we know they should not be saying, that I'm Jesus reincarnated, and I'm back here to lead you all in triumphal procession. Don't listen to it. Don't listen to it. Because no one is qualified to speak of God like Jesus is. So we come to him to superior knowledge of God. I'm not suggesting to you the red words have more authority than the black words in the Bible. I'm not saying that. I'm saying when it comes to the revelation of what God is like, Jesus is the most superior word himself because he can communicate who God is. He is himself God. See, John can only speak about grace Jesus can give grace. Uh, Moses can only show the need for grace, but Jesus made a way for grace. And many people can talk about God. Jesus, who is himself God, can make the Father known. And this leads to one blessing after another. Quickly, why Jesus is better than all of the others. In John chapter 8, verse 53, uh, he talks about how he was before Abraham. Uh, To whom else could we ever go to find grace? The greatest of all, uh, religious people we have in the Bible have been shown to be inferior to Jesus. Abraham, Jesus before Abraham was, I am. They wanted to take up stones and kill him. Uh, Jacob, remember Jesus talking to the woman at the well, and she says to him, are you greater than our father Jacob? And he's like, well, the water that Jacob gives, you'll thirst again. But the water I give, you'll never thirst again. So yes, he's superior to Jacob. Moses and the prophets Moses is the culmination of the greatest prophet. In John uh, 1.17, he talks about how he's greater than Moses. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3, that the builder of the house is greater than the house. And he's talking about Jesus. And David, is he greater than King David? My Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, so I'll make enemies, your enemies your footstool for your feet. This is talking about how the one that David looked forward to is greater than David himself. Solomon, Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 31, that, that Solomon was wise, but a greater than Solomon is here. A greater than Solomon is here. In Jonah, Luke chapter 11, verse 32, that Jonah prophesied in, in Nineveh, and a greater than Jonah is here. That's not, seems to me not, not that hard. <laughs> but he's greater than Jonah, and there was a point in making that statement. And then John the Baptist 
before me. He was. I'm not worthy to bend down and untie his shoes. And then he says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, listen, a greater than the temple is here. Sometimes we get super weird about locations, okay? That'd be wonderful to go and visit and see all the places where Jesus walked. But if the temple were still there, it would not be superior to Jesus himself. Are you with me? No location in all the world has greater access to God than you have right here with Jesus in your heart. And that's good preaching, Pastor. Good thing, because we're about to wrap up. It's important today to understand who it is that brings grace to us and why we can have grace, what the greatest expression is. Because some people are like they're hanging on to their Christianity with one hand and they're searching, groping in the dark for something else. Like, is it Christian? Is it Christ in psychology? Is it Christ in medicine or Christ in technology and Christ in education? What's the thing we're grasping for on the other hand? I don't think there's anything that compares to Jesus. And I think we need to cling to him. We need to stop looking in those other areas for the things that will fulfill us in life. I think, I think it's worth saying that Christ is enough to fulfill us. Isn't he our portion? Remember Jeremiah when he's losing it all in Lamentations? And he's crying and I think, I think he could probably see the billows of smoke rising from the Temple Mount and all the things that he thinks is wonderful, they're destroyed and gone, and people he's known that he loved are dead. The Babylonians are invading the land. The glory of God seems to be diminished in some ways from a natural perspective. He says, Lord, you're my portion. In all of this, that doesn't fulfill me. It's you. So what Jesus offers us is the whole thing. Are you, are you understand what I'm saying? That this is life, to know him. It's not the American dream. You heard me say that. I hope you don't start getting dismissive of that. The American dream dies with the person. What Christ offers us, that sounds very unfourth of July, doesn't it? <laughs> what Christ offers us is far superior. Thank God for all of our privileges. I'm glad for that. But look, it's Jesus. It's Jesus that matters most. See, um, who is it that gives us life and blessing and everything else in God? It's Jesus. And it's important that while we have our favorite verses and Bible heroes and maybe we have our understanding of what Christianity is all about, like our theology, theology is really the second stage of the framework. If we're really to get down to the cornerstone, that beginning thing, it's Jesus. Do we get saved because we have an understanding of how atonement works? We don't. We get saved because we're trusting in Jesus, who is the Savior. Okay? Thank God for good atonement theory. We need to have good theology, but that's not what saves us. Come on. Amen? If you say amen, I'll, I'll be done. Amen. All right. I know you're ready for it. We only have one Savior, and uh, it's his coming that makes it all matter. If it's hard to make sense of what was said, let it, be, let it be clear in this that we need Jesus. We need him. And he will show us what God is like. And he un- unfolds for us all the mysteries of godliness. And he opens to us all the blessings. He's the, the fountainhead of all of God's blessings, which we sang about. 
That just happened. I didn't even intend that. Come thou fount of every blessing. Right? He is the fount of every blessing. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.